This is the final ministerial task before my family and I go on a hiatus for about a week or so. We will be heading to the beach right after this service. And so just to let you know, if you get an out-of-office email reply or my voicemail message, that means that I am attempting to unplug as best I possibly can to hang out with my beautiful family along with my good friends Hemingway, Chesterton, and Lewis. So uh, I will be very happy this week, and I hope you will be too, no matter what's going on in your life. But before we get there, uh, one last task at hand, and I consider this far more pleasure than business. We get to dive into the book of Psalms. Again, this morning, we're in the middle of a sermon series entitled Songs of the Savior. For the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at one particular psalm uh, per week, and we're going to work our way through 10 of those total by the end of the summer. And they're not just any 10 psalms. They're the 10 psalms that the author of Hebrews references in his writing, because when we get to the fall, we're actually going to dive into that book of the Bible, the book of Hebrews. And so this summer is setting the stage for, for what's to come in that regard. We try to do that from time to time in a, in a culture where everything seems to be so fragmented. You kind of jump from from one Netflix show to the next, and then off to Amazon Prime Video, and then off to Hulu, and then to this book, and that book, and this Bible study, and that book study. And the next thing you know, uh, you gain a lot of information, but maybe don't experience quite as much transformation. And so at times, we want to try to streamline things as best we can. And so we're connecting uh, the book of Psalms to the book of Hebrews this fall, and Hopefully that'll serve you well. You'll be able to go back and access the notes, even the podcast from this summer, and see how all of the pieces fit together between those two books of the Bible. The book of Psalms, it's been referred to as the hymn book of the Old Testament, a collection of songs to be sung by God's people in response to his goodness, glory, and grace. They've been used in corporate worship as well as private worship, much like they are today by God's people. We're talking about a book that that doesn't just inform us, but it does transform us. It awakens our minds. It stirs our affections. It directs our wills. It stimulates our imagination. Uh, imaginations. It's a book that is meant to put a song in, in the hearts of God's people as we come face to face with the beauty of who God is and who we are, as we experience the fullness of his character, nature, and being, and the, the fullness of the human condition and experience, you might say. The reason we've entitled this this series, Songs of the Savior, is because the author of Hebrews tells us that these 10 particular psalms find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And not only that, the entire book of Psalms points to Jesus in some way. Again, if we're talking about the hymn book of the Old Testament, a collection of songs meant to be sung by God's people in response to his goodness, glory, and grace, we know that God's goodness, glory, and grace are most surely revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And so as I've said week in and week out, we sing psalms of praise to him as our savior and king. We sing psalms of lament to him as our high priest and advocate. We sing psalms of thanksgiving to him for who he is and what he's done for us. We sing psalms of remembrance to him as we survey all of redemptive history that finds its fulfillment in him. We sing psalms of confidence to him because he's trustworthy. And we sing psalms of wisdom to him because he is the source of all wisdom and wisdom personified. I've said it a number of times in this series, the heart sings of that in which it delights. And so the hope for this series is that you would delight in God, that you would see and savor his goodness, glory, and grace revealed 
in the face of Jesus Christ and that in the seeing and savoring that your life would become more and more a song of praise. And so it's with that being said uh, that you can open up your Bible if you have one to Psalm uh, 110. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab that Bible and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to understand, uh, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, would you, would you awaken our distracted minds in the moments to come? Would you stir our slumbering hearts? Holy Spirit, only you can awaken us to see the beauty of the treasures to be excavated in Psalm 110. Would you do away with any and all barriers that stand in the way of us seeing and savoring you? God, would you help us to see the glory of Christ Jesus, our perfect priest and king, as we dive into your word this morning. Pray that for those who know and love you, Jesus, that that we would find our affections stirred for you, the one who entered into the slums of human history. The king set down his scepter and his crown, and he stooped down. He condescended. You entered into the darkness and sadness of our world in order that we could stand in your presence as king and enjoy you, not as your enemies, but as your friends. And I pray that those who come in with skepticism, hostility toward the gospel, maybe even like me, uh, at one point prior to my own conversion, viewing you, God, as too small to, to bow to, as so small that you could fit in our pockets and we could just carry you around. Pray that we would get a a big glimpse of a big king this morning and that we would find ourselves in glad submission to you, happy to bend our knee because not only are you sovereign, but you're wise and good. God, would you do all of this by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of the King, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So Psalm 110 it's another of the royal psalms. We've taken a look at a couple of royal psalms so far in this series. This particular psalm is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. It's quoted or alluded to in the Gospels, the book of Acts, Paul's writings, Peter's writings, the book of Hebrews. And so we'll actually spend a good bit of time in the New Testament this morning. If you're looking at Psalm 110 and going, oh man, seven verses, we may get out of here for brunch. We won't. Because there are far too many passages in the New Testament that shed light on what we're meant to see in the Old Testament as we look at this particular psalm. I will get you out by lunch, though. Maybe not brunch, but lunch. I can promise you that. This psalm is similar to Psalm chapter 2, which we launched this series with, in that it looks forward to the coming of Jesus. It demands more than a human fulfillment, you might say. But it's even more heightened than Psalm 2 in that regard. Psalm 110 is practically entirely future. It points to Jesus in a way that no human king could possibly fulfill. It starts off with an introduction. It says, a psalm of David, which at first glance, you might just kind of move past right into verse 1, but... 
It's critical that, that David be the author of this psalm. We'll get to that in just a second. Not only do most scholars agree that David is the author of this psalm, but the New Testament authors themselves who quote and allude to this psalm believe David to definitively be the author. The great King David, in the very first verse of this psalm, is going to declare someone in his lineage to be his Lord. Look at verse 1. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a direct message from God to his capital K king. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus uses this verse, verse 1 of Psalm 110, to argue that he is the fulfillment of Psalm 110, that he's the second Lord referenced here in verse 1, that he's the capital K king. Jesus says this, Matthew 22. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, and here he quotes Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus goes on to say, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Uh, Jesus trips up the Pharisees yet again. For the great King David to call someone in his lineage his Lord implies something. It implies that we're not just talking about some great human king. We're talking about deity. Jesus says, that's me. I'm more than just the son of David. I'm the son of God. Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 says it this way. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants, one of David's descendants, on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, here's Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter goes on to say, let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter declares with the masses, uh, to the masses, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. He's greater than David. David is dead and buried. Jesus is not. Jesus is alive and well, exalted to the right hand of God, both Lord and Christ, Peter says. Psalm 110, it's a fascinating chapter of the Bible. It would go on to become the basis of the apostles' teaching on the post-resurrection exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the Father as the perfect high priest and king. And we'll get there in just a moment. As the apostle Paul says in Romans 8.34, he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, He's at the right hand of God, a declaration of his kingship, and he intercedes for us, a declaration of Jesus as our high priest. Coming back to verse 1 
of Psalm 110. It's to this capital K king that God declares, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. No one gets to sit at the right hand of God except Jesus. In fact, the author of Hebrews uses this verse, verse one of Psalm 110, to show that Jesus is greater than the angels. The angels have never been given the right to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. The angels are not the ones who will ultimately lead the charge in the wiping away of evil forever. That's Jesus' right. It says it this way, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands at his daily service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That it's Jesus who delivered the the death blow to the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death. It's Jesus who has been exalted to the right hand of God. It's Jesus who's seated there until the day that he he will return to do away with his enemies forever. And, And even now, even now his kingdom is extending. He's transforming people and culture day after day. He's building his church and the gates of hell can't do a thing about it. That's awesome. Goes on to say in verse 2 of Psalm 110, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. There's this contrasting picture in verses two and three of hostile opposition on the one hand and glad submission on the other. That the king's enemies are hostily opposed to him and yet he, he reigns supreme even in the midst of that opposition. Meanwhile, the king's people gladly and freely submit their lives in service to him. It's this picture of the king and his people entering into this spiritual battle against the forces of evil. It's a battle that's both future and present. You and I are in the midst of a war this very day. I don't know if you realize that or not. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 6, this idea of spiritual warfare and the need for the armor of God and the sword of God's word to do battle with. The Christian life, we talk about this all the time around here, it's a call to war. Not only to fend off the attacks of the enemy, the lies of the enemy, but to gain ground for the glory of King Jesus. Verse 3, the people under the king's reign are, are dressed in attire that matches his glory and purity. Even the language of the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth refer to something. Either the king's youthful strength or the willing soldiers as numerous as the dew drops at dawn. You ever gone outside and looked at your lawn in the early morning? You, you couldn't count the dew drops. There are so many of them. In other words, this king will not be overthrown. He's mighty, and his army of followers is unparalleled. He goes on to say in verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, now we get a second message from God to his capital K king. The first one was in verse one. The second one is here in verse two. Not only is he the king seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, he's also a priest forever. And not just any priest, but one after the order of Melchizedek. Uh-oh, who's that guy? If you've been around the church long enough, you probably have never heard a sermon because no pastor wants to touch it with a 10-foot pole. 
He's this mysterious character that we'll see again when we get to our study of the book of Hebrews this fall. And so I'm not going to give away all of the the details of who he is this morning. Uh, But I do want to hit the rewind button because there is one other place in the Old Testament where Melchizedek shows up in the Bible prior to uh, Psalm 110. It's Genesis 14 where we're told this. After his return, that's Abram. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlamor, that sounds cool, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, there he is, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Abram has just rescued his nephew Lot. And as he's returning from battle, he meets a man by the name of Melchizedek. His very name means king of righteousness. Melech in Hebrew is king. Zedek is righteousness. You you bring those two together. He's the king of righteousness. And he's the king of Salem. Salem from the word shalom, which means peace. So you have the king of righteousness, the prince of peace. Sound familiar? He's a priest of God most high and also king of Salem. In other words, he's a priest king. We'll get, we'll get into that a lot more when we get to the book of Hebrews itself. But for now, suffice it to say that the office of priest and the office of king were two distinct offices in Israel. They were not one and the same. The two were not merged into one role. If you were a Davidic king, you were not also a Levitical priest. And if you were a Levitical priest, you were not also a Davidic king. In fact, there's only one king in the lineage of David that fits the role of priest-king, and his name is Jesus. The prophet Zechariah spoke of the coming together of those two roles of priest and king in the coming of the Messiah. Now you begin to see why Psalm 110 must look to the future, why it must look for its fulfillment in Jesus. It, it only makes sense when you connect the dots to him. He's our perfect priest and king. More to come on that in just a second. We, we talked about it last week to some degree, that Jesus is our perfect high priest who hears our cries and enters into our affliction with great compassion. And he's also our perfect king who is sovereign over all affliction and will wipe it away forever one day when he returns. The Old Testament priesthood and sacrificial system was never intended to fix the problem of sin. It was meant to point us to the need for a better priest and a better sacrifice. It was meant to point us to Jesus Christ himself, that Jesus is better than all the priests who came before him because he's sinless. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins. If he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, then he cannot die for sinners. And if he's a sinner, then 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a lie where Paul says, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. Jesus takes my sin record, and he gives me his perfect righteous record in exchange. The most gloriously unfair trade in all of human history. But if Jesus isn't sinless, then he has no righteousness to give you or me. But the good news of the gospel is that the only sinless priest to have ever walked this earth died in the place of sinners. He provided a sacrifice to end all sacrifices in the sacrifice of himself. That Jesus is better than all the priests who came before him because he's sinless 
Jesus is also better than all the priests who came before him because he established a better covenant in his blood, a new covenant. Jesus is also better than all the priests who came before him because he ministers in a better tabernacle, namely a heavenly one. Jesus is also better than all the priests who came before him because he will never die. Every Levite priest, if you read the Old Testament, had to hand off the baton at some point because every one of them eventually died. Jesus doesn't have to do that. You don't have to worry about Jesus in the middle of interceding for you on your behalf, dying in the middle of his interceding. He died and rose from the dead, never to die again. And so the the heart of Psalm 110 is this. It's that the king who reigns at the right hand of the father is also the priest who represents us to the father. The, The final few verses of this psalm are really fascinating you probably don't spend much time in verses that sound like these as you sit with the Lord in your private times of devotion. There's this picture of a violent battle. I would argue that Psalm 110 would be rated R. If you put it into a Hollywood film format, there's no way this thing is PG or PG-13. It's a violent battle. The, the enthronement of Jesus as our perfect high priest is not the final chapter of the story. Jesus will one day return to judge, judge his enemies in order to create eternal peace for his followers. In other words, these last few verses of this psalm take us to the book of Revelation, the final pages of redemptive history. Look at verses five through seven. It says this, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. There's there's no Davidic king in the Bible who experienced this kind of triumph. We're talking about worldwide domination here. Again, this psalm must look forward to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And when he comes back, it's not gonna be to take another beating. He's coming back as an undefeatable warrior king. Listen to this description of Jesus' return in Revelation 19, uh, which which helps us to to better understand and connect the dots to verses five through seven of this morning's psalm. If you pick it up in verse 11 of Revelation 19, John says this, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is a picture of Jesus when he returns. Jesus is coming back on a white horse, the ultimate good guy. This is going to be the coolest Western to have ever unfolded in human history. John Wayne has nothing on Jesus, okay? He's faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war that he must do away with evil in order to make everything sad, untrue. Heaven is no heaven at all if it's filled with wickedness, be it men or fallen angels. No one wants to live in a heaven where you have to constantly look over your shoulder. It goes on to say in verse 12 of Revelation 19, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself that his eyes are filled with a piercing gaze that causes his enemies to melt with conviction. On his head are many royal crowns. He has many crowns because he's the king of kings. You notice what he doesn't have on his head? He doesn't have a crown of thorns anymore. He's not coming back like that. He's showing up as the triumphant, exalted king that he is. 
Verse 13. I love this. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. So Jesus shows up for the final battle against the powers of evil wearing cotton. You think he's planning on losing this fight? No armor, no breastplate, no helmet, just a robe. And it's dipped in blood. It's either his own blood, which he shed on the cross to remind his enemies that he's a death conqueror. You thought the grave could hold me down? You were wrong. Or it's the blood of his enemies as a way of saying, you're going to be part of this momentarily. It goes on to say in verse 14 of Revelation 19, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Jesus' Jesus's army looks like they're more appropriately dressed for the after party than the battle. They're not wearing fatigues. They're not wearing camouflage. I mean, why don't the host of heaven wear something that doesn't show blood or mud or dirt? You know why? Because they don't plan on getting bloody or muddy or dirty. This is going to be an easy battle. And they're going to win it with such certainty that they're already dressed for the after party. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. That with the same effortless authority that Jesus spoke the world into existence, the same effortless authority that he sustains the world by so that it doesn't fall into pieces right now as we speak, Jesus will open his mouth. And the power of his authoritative word will bring down his enemies like a sword in battle. And they will experience the fullness of God's wrath. One of the beauties of the gospel is this. Some people go, man, why do we have to talk about God's wrath? Well, it's because if we don't talk about the wrath of God, then we can't talk about the beauty of a wrath-bearing Savior. But one of the beauties of the gospel is this. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs so that we don't have to. That he made a way for sinners like you and I to stand in the 5,000 degree centigrade presence of a holy God and not burn up in an instant, but rather enjoy making much of him forever. Only Jesus and his cross can do that. But if we reject Jesus as our substitute wrath bearer, we will bear God's wrath for ourselves one day. It goes on to say in verse 16 of Revelation 19, on his robe and on his thigh, He has a name written, Jesus does. And that name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That Jesus is cruising in on a white horse, flames in his eyes, sword protruding from his mouth, wearing all white, his angelic army wearing all white. And just to show us the certainty of the victory, he's got a tattoo on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Have you ever seen a really embarrassing tattoo? All right, maybe you guys have have encountered uh, this blunder. There was a gentleman who last year, right before game seven of the World Series, uh, Cleveland fan, as you can tell by the picture, had already gotten the Cavaliers logo tattooed on his forearm because Cleveland had, in fact, won the NBA championship. But just prior to game seven of the World Series between the Indians and the Cubs, he decided to go get an Indians tattoo as if he was prophetic and could determine with certainty how that game was going to unfold. Well, 
if, if you know how the story goes, the Cubs ended up winning game seven in extra innings, and now this guy's branded with this tattoo for the rest of his life. When you get a tattoo that you think is going to be true forever, only to have things not end up how you planned, that is incredibly embarrassing. That is utterly humiliating. Jesus says, tap me up. He knows that all opposing kings and kingdoms don't stand a chance when he returns to set all things right. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And hear me when I say this. It's not that the king will emerge victorious because of his great army. It's that his great army will emerge victorious because he's the king. Goes on to say in verse 17 of Revelation 19, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. It's a similar language to what you find in verse six of this morning's psalm. It's kind of crazy to think about. Every Thanksgiving, it's human beings eating a bird. According to Revelation 19, there's coming a day where everything's going to be reversed. That it's the birds who are gonna be doing the feasting. Revelation 19 paints a picture of complete victory for King Jesus. Sounds a lot like verse 7 of this morning's psalm. Verse 7 tells of a victorious king. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That The battle is won. Refreshment is his. He lifts his head in triumph. Imagine how this would have encouraged the Israelites to fight the good fight of faith, to keep on keeping on. It's meant to encourage us, the church, as well. That Jesus inaugurated the victory in his first coming and he will consummate the victory in his second coming. That there's coming a day when Jesus will return to make everything sad untrue. But in order to do so, he must eradicate evil from the world. Think of it this way. Without Revelation 19, there is no Revelation 21 and 22. And those last two chapters of the Bible are pretty remarkable, are they not? Listen to some of these descriptors of the new heaven and earth. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, verses 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in the new Jerusalem. And his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That, that kind of happily ever after described in Revelation chapters 21 and 22 cannot happen without the defeat of those in opposition to the king and his eternally good kingdom. It reminds me of, of a couple of scenes, and you could probably add to the list 
as I think I may have mentioned before, I'm slowly, again, working my way back through the Chronicles of Narnia, and, and you get this, this image of Aslan and his army, his band of followers, uh, battling against the White Witch and her band of followers. And when we watch movies like that, uh, it has a way of stirring us to cheer for the triumphant victory of good over evil. Maybe if that's not, uh, maybe if that's not a part of your repertoire, maybe Braveheart resonates better with you. When you watch that movie, you find yourself cheering for the Scots to defeat the Brits. We're okay with bloodshed as it pertains to other writings and stories. Why is that? Why is it that we're okay with scenes like that in other stories, even cheering for ultimate and final destruction when we're bothered by it in the Scriptures? And there are probably a number of answers to that question. We could probably do an entire sermon series on that. But, but let me just throw out one that I think rings true for, for many of us, myself included. With those other stories, you and I, we get to be a spectator. There, there's no risk of us being identified with the White Witch or the army of King Edward the Longshanks. Like, well, there's no worry about that. We, we get to kind of stand back as spectators and make judgment calls of, of what good and evil actually are in those narratives. But when we sit with the scriptures, we are no mere spectators. We're characters in this divine, redemptive, historical drama. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says to the Pharisees, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. That every person walking this planet is either on the side of Aslan or the White Witch, according to the Bible. And the scriptures tell us that whose side we're on is not based on how good we are, which is really frustrating for those of us who would like to think that we can earn our way into God's good graces. That this divine redemptive historical drama that we're a part of is not filled with good guys and bad guys. Rather, it's filled with bad guys and Jesus who comes in on his white horse to save the day and to rescue bad guys like you and me. So how do we end up on the winning side? Critical question. And the answer, according to the scriptures, is it comes by grace, through faith, in the king who shed his blood in order to bring us into his eternal kingdom. No one, no one come, wants to come face to face with the fact that they might be on the side of the white witch, which is part of the reason why passages like Psalm 110 and Revelation 19 are so offensive to many Jesus didn't come for those who think they have it all together. He came for the rejects and ragamuffins. We're, we're meant to feel our desperate need for a savior when we open up the scriptures, that we can never claw our way into the king's good graces. But the beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to. We can stop trying to impress God. We're free from the empty chase of trying to earn his love. Jesus bridged the gap that you and I could never bridge ourselves. He lived the perfect sinless life that we could never live. He died the sinner's death that we deserve to die. Our sins were put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place. Using the language of Psalm 110, you could say it this way. We cannot stand in the presence of Jesus as king apart from the atoning work of Jesus as priest. It's why, strange as its inclusion may seem, verse four holds the key to our hope in Psalm 110. Sitting right there in the middle 
of verses 1 through 3 and verses 5 through 7, which declare that the triumph of the king sits verse 4, which declares our ultimate hope, that Jesus is our perfect high priest. He made the sacrifice to end all sacrifices and the sacrificing of himself. And in doing so, he's made a way for us to stand in his presence as king and have no fear of condemnation, no fear of destruction, no fear of wrath. He bore the wrath that was ours to bear by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus alone. We can be part of the most glorious happily ever after the world has ever known. If you read the Gospels, it's fascinating. You begin to notice that the Jews wanted Jesus as king without Jesus as priest. They wanted him to be everything described in verses 1 through 3 and verses 5 through 7 of Psalm 110. They wanted him to overthrow Roman tyranny and oppression and establish himself as king. And Jesus' response, trust me, you do not want the king without the priest. The king must die as a ransom for many. And so Jesus, the gospels tell us, set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. You you can just hear Jesus declaring the words of Psalm 110 verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. My mind's made up on this. I'm heading to, to Jerusalem, to the hill of Golgotha to take up my cross and die. I'm destined to die as the once for all sacrifice to cleanse you from sin so that when I return to make everything sad, untrue, it won't be to your everlasting shame, but rather to your everlasting joy. This is another one of those kingship psalms that presents the question to us, whose side are we on? Are we for Jesus or are we against him? If you're not a Christian, man, I I implore you this morning to put your hope in Jesus, the perfect priest, and his atoning sacrifice for sin on your behalf, and to bend your knee in glad submission to him as king. He's a good and wise king. Each week of this series, we've taken the time to sit with the question, how does this psalm point to Jesus? I don't think we need to do that this week, because I think the entire sermon has been an answer to that question. But I would like to attempt to answer the other question that we've been talking about week in and week out of this series, which is this. What is our song to sing as the church, as God's people? If you're a Christian, the heart sings of that in which it delights. What are we meant to delight in as we consider Psalm 110? As I've done each week of this series, I'll offer you just a couple of lyrics that I think are worthy of including on the track. You might add more as you read Psalm 110. But but here are a couple. Number one. He is the king of kings who will triumph over his enemies in the end. That includes his ultimate triumph over Satan. That includes his ultimate triumph over fallen angels. That includes his ultimate triumph over those who reject him as savior and king. And what that means is that there will come a day in which everything sad will indeed come untrue. The white witch and her band of followers will be defeated forever. And if you know something of the brokenness of this world, that is something to to look forward to with great hope and anticipation. No more evil. No more crying. No more pain. No more sickness. No more death. And the most glorious thing of all, we shall see his face. The face of the king in all of his splendor and glory. Which leads me to the second lyric 
Not only is he the king of kings who will triumph over his enemies in the end, but he's also the priest of priests who made the ultimate sacrifice to make us his friends. I'll say it again. You and I, we cannot stand in the presence of Jesus as king apart from the atoning work of Jesus as priest. Aren't you thankful that he set his face toward Jerusalem? That he didn't take the Jews up on their offer? Aren't you thankful that he gave his life as a ransom for you? Aren't you thankful for verse four of Psalm 110? That Jesus, our priest, has made a way for us to enjoy basking in his presence as Jesus, our king. And so let me ask, as I've asked every week of this series, are these lyrics part of the song of your heart? Because we have a song to sing, both with our lips as we move into a time of reflection and singing, and with our lives as we leave this place. We have a glorious opportunity to declare the excellencies of our perfect priest and king.